Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. Delighted to have, for the third time, my guest, uh, Charles Pierce. We're calling uh, Charles Visits here with the Wall of Power Radio Hour Checkpoint Charlie. He is at a uh, he's at a library somewhere in whereabouts are you, Charlie? Lancaster, Massachusetts. Okay, he's a great liberal blogger. Writes for Esquire dot com. He's a titan on Twitter, and uh, you've seen him on MSNBC and CNN. Also uh, with our friend Stephanie Miller, he shows up there weekly on her show. Uh, we're delighted to have him. What are you doing in the uh, in the library, Charlie? Oh, this is where I generally come over and do the blogging every day. Oh, okay. It's got some nice quiet spots, and it's got, uh, you know, all the books I'll ever need. <laughs> and and uh, usually, I mean, I do have a little bit of an office that I use that, uh, it's about three blocks from here. But oh. uh, in the summer, I can't use it because it gets too hot in there. Wow. So, well, uh, now I'm working out the technology to be able to use it this winter. But otherwise, I'm right here. Wow. Well, we've had, uh, since we last chatted, I, I felt a little bad about it. We we uh, started the show, so I'm always uh, a little hesitant to see what we're going to start with tonight, but we started the show last uh, time talking about Whitey uh, Bulger, the, uh, the uh, criminal uh, mastermind uh, murder from Boston, and after the show, literally three days later, he was beaten to death in federal prison, so... Let's be careful what we're going to start talking about tonight. Um, but I heard they had a n- nice funeral for him in Boston, and his girlfriend, who's actually in a Minnesota prison, her twin sister showed up. Um, you can't make that yeah, stuff up. Yeah, even, even, even in death, old Whitey was a very strange cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good chapter to be closed. It's, yeah. It, it's, you know, it's... It was a long and very awful chapter in Boston's history, and it's good that it's that it's closed now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on to brighter days. Uh, let's talk. Let's start midterms. Uh, everybody's going. It wasn't the blue wave they thought, but these Dems keep oh. picking up seats day, day after day. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I don't know if you had an advent calendar when you were a kid, mm-hmm. where you'd open the little door and there'd be a treat every day before Christmas. Right. This is this is a political advent calendar. You wake up every morning, you open another door, and there's Another Democratic congressman. Hmm. A congressperson, I guess. Right, right. How do you think Florida's going to uh, work out? I don't have the faintest bloody idea, and I don't think anybody down there does either. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I think probably uh, Nelson has a better chance than Gillen does, but mm-hmm. that's just calling it from 30,000 feet. Right. Well, I mean, we're going to be, we're going to be, you know, riding every ride in deposition lane for the next six months, I think. Mm-hmm. What is your... Uh... What is your feeling? I, of course, I follow you every day on Twitter, uh, but this whole effort by a handful of uh, young Dems to remove uh, Nancy Pelosi as speaker. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's not really the young Dems who are doing it. It's it's the uh, we still have to win over the guys in the diner in the Mahoning Valley types like Tim Ryan mm-hmm. from Ohio and Seth Moulton from here. Uh, it's not uh, the Ocasio-Cortezes of the world. It's the moderate, quote-unquote, Problem Solver Caucus mm-hmm. in the House, which is a remarkable name, considering, as near as I can tell, the Problem Solver Caucus has never solved the problem. <laughs> and uh, it's, it would seem to me if there would be, you know, the other more obvious target would be Chuck Schumer. What, what's your feeling? Oh, yeah, I mean, and he was, he was, you know, reelected to be, you know, leader in the, in the, in the Senate without even any fuss or bother. It just went blowing through mm-hmm. on, uh, on uh, Tuesday. 
and uh, yet we've got this, you know, we've got this, you know, the Democrats have this magnificent new majority in the House. It's getting bigger every day, and they can't still on, you know, the woman who I think is the the most talented legislative politician they've had since Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. What uh, have you ever met, Nancy Pelosi? I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell, tell she, us what she's, she's like good. in person. She's very interesting. She's very tough. Uh, she's not, you know, entirely San Francisco. It's hard as the Republicans try to make her into, you know, whatever a San Francisco liberal is. Mm-hmm. Uh, she knows how, and she knows how to count. She knows how to count better than most legislative leaders do. Mm-hmm. So if she says she has the votes, she has the votes. Yeah, right. She's uh, uh, she's really good. I've always uh, appreciated her work. Yeah, and if you if you want to move younger people in, move Steny Hoyer out of the you know right. Out of the leadership position, put Hakeem Jeffries in there, and then let Jim Clyburn hire a bunch of you know talented young whips and let and you know groom them that way. It's not that hard a problem to solve. Right. Well, it's funny. I uh, until this until uh, the recent elections a few weeks ago, I forgot all about Steny Hoyer, and there he was standing next to Nancy Pelosi. And I go, where, yeah. Where the I hell, mean, I don't know where what he's he Yeah, but uh, you know, he, he's certainly expendable at this point. Right. Now, recently, as of uh, today, uh, tell us your take on uh, Jamal Khashoggi and uh, and the Kabuki dance that's going on with that. Well, I mean, this it continues to be. You know, this is not uh, this is not a this is not a system of justice in Saudi Arabia. This is a getaway car. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're going they're going to kill every they're going to execute now everybody who might know something about the involvement of you know. The upper parts of the Saudi government, the royal family. Right. I mean, this is this is ridiculously obvious. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy, the prosecutor, calls like the first press conference he's ever called to announce that everybody who knows, you know, really anything about the plot to kill this guy is going to wind up being executed. Right. Well, now, didn't it uh, say in the recently when the world leaders uh, convened that was it Canada that heard the tapes that Turkey has of the murder? I'm sorry, Paul. I didn't hear. Oh, that. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just uh, recently when the, when the world leaders gathered for the uh, commemoration of the ending of the World War One. I, I think I read somewhere that uh, was it uh, Canada or France that heard the tapes of uh, the murder that uh, supposedly Turkey has. Uh, that's entirely possible. Uh, that uh, that that that's the case. I'm not exactly sure. What you know? Who to believe at this point? Right. But we certainly know that the Saudis had him killed. We know that the body was disposed of, and we know that at the very least there was a wink and a nod from upper echelons. Right. Now, who is this uh, cleric that they want to um, uh, that they want to get out of the United States? Oh, this is an, this is this is a, a, a stunningly amoral act, even by the standards of the current administration. Right. This guy is in, he's in Pennsylvania. He's a Turkish dissident whom uh, Erdogan has wanted to get his hands on for years. He has asylum in this country. And it looks like that the, at least NBC News is saying that the administration is willing to trade him so that Turkey will lay off Saudi Arabia, wow. which is a real tinkers to Everest to chance right. double play of you know supporting awful dictators. Right. My goodness. So if I'm if I'm this gentleman in Pennsylvania, you know, I'm booking a train to Montreal as fast as I can. <laughs> no doubt. Um, 
or Manitoba. They could go to Winnipeg. Yeah. You come up through Minneapolis. Oh, hell yeah. Well, um, there's, there's always been a great uh, rock and roll scene in in Winnipeg. Of, of Several of my Iron Range friends moved up there in the 70s and are still there uh, rocking the clubs. Of course, um, it was the same circuit that uh, Bachman-Turner Overdrive came of age in, and uh, what I loved, I don't know if we talked about this before, but Daniel Lenoir, the great uh, Canadian musician and producer, he used to play, I was reading, he's got an interesting uh, autobiography, and he talked about when he was coming of age in Canada, uh, he and his brother used to play in a band, and they played a circuit of restaurant bars that was uh, owned by Bobby Orr. Really? I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I know that you know, before his manager stole all his money, uh, you know, or was heavily invested in that kind of thing up there. That's interesting. Yeah. Isn't, uh, isn't that where we got Neil Young from, too, by the yeah, way? Yeah, Neil Young came from there. Well, you know, and uh, uh, the band, Ian and Sylvia. Uh, yeah, but the band was more Toronto, right? Yeah, they were more Toronto. Um, but, yeah, uh, Winnipeg. My goodness gracious. Uh well, you got to do something. There is, a, there is a town in North Ontario, but that's not Winnipeg. <laughs> Winnipeg, Minnesota. Never mind. You got you got to do something up there in the wintertime. You know, I had uh, one of these days when I get it together, I'll I'll I'll, I'll text you a picture. In 1968, when uh, young Paul Metza thought he was going to become a, a professional hockey player, went to the Tommy Williams Hockey School in uh, Duluth, Minnesota, in the summertime at the Duluth Arena. Tommy Williams, the only American in the NHL for years. Yeah. And uh, the uh, the two um, noted well. The he, I believe he became he was did he do his first year in the NHL? But he was one of the uh, the coaches. And I got a picture of the front page of the sports section. Uh, young Paul with Bobby Orr. Whoa, that's that's a good one to have. Believe yeah. me, you, you can get yourself a couple of beers here if you bring that with you. <laughs> I'll take you. I'll take I'll take you to Sullivan's Tap across the street from the Garden. You won't pay for a dime. That's you won't a, pay for a drink. That's a that that that's a done deal. Now, who was I'm I'm, I'm trying to for, I'm forgetting right now. But who was um, the goalie uh, at that time for the Bruins? Oh, Jerry Cheevers. Yeah. Okay. And who was with the stitches on with the stitches on his mask? Yeah. yeah right. Right. And and who was the, the other guy? I remember seeing in Look magazine. Was it Terry Sawchuk? Do you remember that name? Well, he was from yeah, but he was from he was from the Rangers. Yeah, but he was, he a, was goalie. a goalie for the Rangers. Yeah, but I just remember they had yeah. uh, uh, they had they had dummied up a, a hockey mask and said this is what his face or, or they dummied up a face of this is what his face would look like without the mask. Yeah, yeah, well, that was that was what Cheevers did. Cheevers used to mark every time he got hit in the face with a puck. He used to mark on his mask where the stitches were. Maybe been. that's what it was then. Maybe yeah. that's what it was. Well, we are going to talk more uh, uh, national, international politics and useless trivia that's only good for and guys hockey. like and hockey for guys like Charlie <laughs> Pierce, my guest, and I in bars. We'll be back in just a bit on the Wall of Power Radio. will start fires or keep your feet above the flames when you're walking on the wire life is sweet but time is short 
Keep your train on the track When you're whistling past the graveyard And the graveyard whistles back Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzen, with my guest from a library in Boston, the esteemed Charles Pierce. Charles, you, I bet you spent a lot of time in libraries over the years. You're a very well-read cat. Yeah, I mean, that's where I, you know, that's where I, you know, where the research, I, when I go to a, like, when, when I'm writing something longer than the blog, the first place I go whenever I get to a new town is the local history section of the library, mm-hmm. the local library, because you look, I mean, there's always, you know, there's always plenty to do there, and there's always a lady who's been working there for like 60 years, and has been waiting for 50 of those years for someone to come in and start asking her questions. <laughs> so you find out more about the town, the history of the town. I remember going to the, there's a magnificent local library in Warroad. Oh, Really? They have a huge. I remember going. I was there in December to write about the hockey tradition with Henry Boucher and stuff mm-hmm. for GQ, and I had a um, who lost it. They, they, had, this, they had this open reading room with a big stone fireplace. Wow! And so I I went in there and I did you know maybe three hours worth of research between noon and three, and then from three to late until closing, I just sat in this big room, grabbed a book, put my feet up in front of the fire, and let the snow fall. Wow, that's a beautiful thing. Didn't Henry lose an eye playing hockey? He did. Yeah. yeah, he got he got beat up by a uh, guy, a Boston Bruin named uh, uh, Forbes, Dave Forbes. Right. Uh, it was one of the one of the very first cases that left the rink and wound up being part of the criminal prosecution. Right. Dave was a bit of a goon, wasn't he? Well, Forbes was. Yeah, Henry yeah. was talented. Henry Henry was a you know he was one of the very first Native American players in the NHL, mm-hmm. uh, and he was he was very talented. Right. Um. So what? Uh... And I think if you ask around, there's a legendary state hockey championship game between between Warroad and Edina from the early seventies. Mm-hmm. And you know it was like a Hoosiers thing because Warroad was the high school was so small. Henry was on that team on the Warroad team, right? And I don't remember the exact details, but Warroad almost beat him. And uh, as I said, it was a real Hoosiers thing because Adina at that time had one high school and was, you know, very wealthy. You know, I don't have to explain to you. Right. A wealthy suburb with all kinds of things. And here come these, you know, these scruffy guys from even north of the Iron Range. Right. You know, with this, this native kid who could play, play rings around everybody. And I think they lost in like triple overtime or something. I kind of but you'd remember have to check that. With, yeah. uh, somebody who's up more up on Minnesota high school hockey than I am. Well, uh, you know, we've always, especially coming down from the Iron Range, we always uh, referred to Edina as cake eaters. And the thing was about Edina, their hockey program, they had an indoor hockey rink, so they could practice all year long. And uh, uh, You guys had to wait for the pond to freeze. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, See, I know all that. My father was a high school hockey coach, so oh, really? I became a hockey fan early on. Did you play sports at all, Charlie? I played, you know, recreationally, mm-hmm. never formally, uh, and I stopped being a goalie because my I started I can't wear contact lenses, and I had to start wearing glasses. Mm-hmm. And damn it, Trechak hadn't invented the birdcage mask yet, so I couldn't <laughs> wear a mask, and that was the end of my goalie career. You know, it's amazing when I I uh, 
when I was playing peewee hockey as a kid, uh, one of my prized possessions was uh, the same kind of hockey helmet that uh, International Falls wore. And uh, absolutely the the basic minimum for a hockey helmet. It was like a little yeah. padding on top, nothing around the ears, no face, way years before the face mask was invented. Sure. And uh, we all ended up okay after that. But now, uh, you know, you look at uh, your standard goalie right now, it's like a Mad Max movie, you know, in the NHL. <laughs> <laughs> I like the uh, I like the uh, the pads uh, the the like the goalie pads yeah now the leg pads yeah Those things are about nine feet wide <laughs> so uh, what was it like going back as a kid when did you get a chance to see the Boston Bruins uh, for the first time well I am a, I am a very much a renegade hockey fan I am a Montreal Canadiens fan okay. I've been all, all my entire life so um, it was not easy for me growing up here let me tell you right right. What, it's the only. It's the only Boston sports team that I don't that of whom I am not a fan. Mm-hmm. Interesting, because when I was a kid, their Bruins were really terrible before Orr got there. Mm-hmm. They would win like eighteen games a year. They were awful, and I didn't want to be a Bruins fan. So I asked my dad, who was an assistant principal and a hockey coach, you know, what team should I follow? Who's really good? Who should I follow? And he, we were watching the game. Uh, you know, game of the week or whatever on one weekend, and he pointed to Montreal, and he said, these guys, watch these guys. These guys really know how to play. And I fell in love with John Belleville. Oh, there you go. And I wrote him a fan letter, and he wrote me back a, a glorious handwritten fan letter. Oh. So I became a, a Belleville fan and then a Canadian fan. You know, I maintain, and I've actually said this in print, that John Belleville is everything everybody thought Joe DiMaggio was. Huh. Interesting. I mean, he was... The, he was you know, he was godlike in Montreal, but he really deserved it because he was a great guy. Wow. Which DiMaggio wasn't. Hmm. Huh. Well, you know, I was, uh, I had all of my, before I went to Florida to play this gig at the end of September, uh, I had all of my email and internet go down, lost, I don't know, seven or 800 contacts. So, since uh, the beginning of November, I've been slowly piecing them back together, one email address at a time. And I stumbled on an email uh, from Jack Carlson, who was the enforcer for not only the uh, uh, St. Paul Saints, but then uh, uh, the Minnesota North Stars, graduated from Roosevelt High School, my hometown in 1972. Of course, his two brothers, uh, uh, Steve and Jeff, were the Hanson brothers in uh, the, one of the greatest sports movies all, all time, Slapshot. Do you know who I'm talking about, Jack Carlson, Charlie? Vaguely, yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember him because I think when I was going to Milwaukee Admirals games when I was in college, I think he was playing for the Saints. Yeah, right. So he uh, he had uh, you know, a very storied career, really uh, tough Tough guy. He wasn't one of the handsome, though, right? It was his brothers. Who yeah, were his, his yeah, his younger brother Steve, who had graduated in '73, and his older brother Jeff, who graduated in 1971. Jack graduated with my sister Jackie in '72. So uh, I just found his email. I was trying to get him on the show for some hockey-related thing I was doing. And then I remembered when I bumped into him, it was about 10 years ago, I was in my hometown of Virginia, Minnesota, and so I decided to go down and hang out at the uh, uh, class reunion for the Class 72, and Jack was there, and of course, you know, he's kind of the star, uh, still the star, you know, the guy that really went on and made a name for himself. And so we sat down, and uh, uh, 
we had a really nice chat. And I said, Jack, I said, um, what, what are you doing these days? Besides, he was sold insurance for a while, and now he uh, uh, does things with um, uh, sending stuff, pa- big packages through the airline for some company, whatever. So we started talking. He goes, well, I'm, he goes, I'm, uh, I'm coaching and um, uh, refing peewee hockey. I said, well, how's that going? He said, I had no idea there was that many rules. We'll be back with Charles Paris on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Hang in there. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzen. My guest for the whole show, Checkpoint Charlie Pierce. Charlie, did you, uh, were you in the Marvel Comics as a kid? Where, you know, we just oh, sure, absolutely. I, was a very, I mean, I was a Marvel guy, not a DC guy. Okay. So tell us about um, what you think Stan Lee's place in American culture is. Oh, I think he's, you know, I think he, you know, first of all, it, it was a lot of, he was responsible for a lot of kids getting into reading in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would think he, Dr. Seuss, and, uh, geez, I can't think of anybody else yeah. right now, uh, who would get kids into reading. He, he was able to craft, uh, an inclusive mythology that was way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had misfit superheroes. Who ever heard of that? Right. Even though it looked, I mean, it, the obvious point was that any superhero would be a misfit. Right, but he was able to he was able to make that relatable to kids in you know middle school and grammar school and you know didn't feel like they fit in and right. I think that was a tremendous blessing. He was way ahead of himself uh, in terms of, of in terms of equal rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you know I think his his life was a blessing on the culture. I really do. What uh, what's your favorite superhero of his? Of his, mm-hmm. I was I was actually because I grew up. The, the the very first book I, I remember reading over and over again was a textbook that my father brought home from the high school where he was a teacher called Myths and Their Meaning, which was a, a a book about ancient mythology and you know all the ancient mythologies, Greek, Roman, Norse, Irish, all of them. So I was a very big Thor guy. I thought bringing Thor back was pretty interesting. Hmm. Uh, but I remember... And you know, I, I actually tweeted about this a couple of days ago. When I went to college, my mother threw out all my comic books. Oh man, including like Avengers number one, <laughs> a Spider-Man number one. I would go. I had to take take a bus to go to grammar school, 
and I would have to change buses to get home. And the bus station where I would change buses had this enormous wall of nothing but, like, magazines and comic books. Right. So I'd go in there with, you know, 50 cents or a buck and come out with four of them, Mm -hmm. which I would read on the bus and be done by the time I got home. But I had them all in a box under my bed. I didn't, like, you know, put them in plastic like my sons do. Right. You know, to save them for for the resale value or whatever. I wasn't collecting them. I was reading them over and over again. But I told my I told my oldest boy that when he was maybe about nine or ten, and I don't think he ever I don't think he ever forgave my mother for it. <laughs> I'm not going to grandma's house. <laughs> but I, exactly. But I put you know I put that up on Twitter, and I got like ten responses from people. The same thing had happened to them. Oh man. They went away to school, and their mother got rid of all their comic books. <laughs> you know, when I was I was thinking about Stan Lee. And, uh, you know, I was a big comic book guy, too. But I remember, you know, you, you're, you and I are just about the same age. And, uh, sure. You're, I think, maybe, maybe a year younger. Yeah, just turned, just turned 63. But um, uh, as like my stepsister said, happy birthday, two years till Medicare. But anyway. <laughs> well, I'm signing up this week. Are you kidding? There you go. But uh, you think about, you know, what, what I think was one of the most, one of my, most favorite magazines, and and when you look back, and I think it was uh, totally subversive, was Mad Magazine. Oh, no question. Yeah, uh, subverting, you know, not merely you know politics and stuff, but also entertainment. Yeah, and one I, of the very one of the very first, like, not quite naughty, but you knew you were reading something subversive when you were a kid. Right. Right. Exactly. Now, it wasn't like sneaking Playboy, but it was, you know, it was in the same like area code. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I loved, um, I love the story about the uh, publisher, William Gaines, where whatever company owned, uh, you know, the, the parent company of whoever ran mad magazine was, uh, you know, William Gaines was supposed to get a physical every year for insurance purposes. So he'd go out and find kind of a roly-poly homeless guy on the street with a beard who looked kind of like him, give him 50 bucks and send him in to do uh, to do his physical for him. <laughs> so oh, it, man, that's yeah, great. Yeah, and so... Uh, hey, we also, we also should make note, uh, certainly in your field, you should make note that we lost a couple of good ones. We lost Tony Joe White and now the last couple of days, Roy Clark. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm a couple of pickers. Oh my! You know, Roy Clark. He was so funny. P- people kind of overlooked the fact that what a phenomenal guitar player he was. Same thing happened with Glenn Campbell. Yeah, you know, he was such a hit maker, and 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 uh, I mean, I didn't even know about how hot a guitar player was till I saw that. That documentary about the Wrecking Crew a few years ago. Oh yeah, no, he was phenomenal. Um, but Roy Clark, there's a, a ton of stuff. I got into a little Roy Clark thing this summer uh, with my buddy in Nashville, and we were trading Roy Clark uh, YouTube guitar phenomenal uh, videos. Yeah. You know, thank God for YouTube that uh, that uh, these things are still available. It, yeah, I was talking to somebody the other day. I can't remember who it was. It was one of my younger uh, political writing pals. And I told him, I said, you know, what people don't realize, and it's all on YouTube now, everybody played the Johnny Cash show. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't know how long that show was on the air, but everybody played on it. I think it was about three years, but I mean, you know. Yeah, it wasn't longer than I don't think it was longer than that. Yeah. 
And, and I mean, there's there's a YouTube of, of Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and, of course, Dylan. Yep. And there's a YouTube with he and Carl Perkins and Eric Clapton and the Dominoes. Yeah, and Chris Christopherson. Playing Matchbox. Yeah. No, it's... Uh, uh, and, you know, and back then on, I forget what it was, it was probably an East Coast cable thing, right about the same time Pete Seeger had a, a TV show as well. And yeah, you, I think that was a public, I think that was on public, what was then called public TV. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, you know, and he had, jeez, uh, he had, uh, uh, you know, Gordon Lightfoot on, Sonny Terry and Brian McGee and Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Um, you, you know, the mind kind of boggles at how, cool it was you know at a certain point where that stuff you know in, in the case of johnny cash show could actually be on nationally on national television yeah and, and this and, and it wasn't lip synced either it was all live right and you know because what, i remember i remember watch i've watched the, the the Joni mitchell thing and of course she was notorious for having stage fright yeah and she looks very nervous yeah well you know i uh interviewed um sean phillips a couple of years ago, who was in town at the uh, Guthrie Theater. And, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, there's a, there's an episode of that Pete Seeger show. I want to say, say it was called, like, Rainbow Gathering or something like that, uh, with a young Sean Phillips. But Sean told me uh, that when he, he had a, back then, a six-nighter in Canada. Now, where did, uh, where did uh, Joni, she was Canadian, but what uh, province did she grow up in? She was from Alberta, yeah, I okay, think. Yeah. So anyway, according to Sean Phillips, he was uh, had the Six Snyder at a club that Joni was waitressing on, and he, according to Sean Phillips, and there's no reason why not to believe him, he said he gave Joni Mitchell some of her first guitar lessons. Wow, really? Because because I mean, guitar players have told me that the way she tunes her guitar is just bizarre. Yeah. Oh, it's that it's because she... apparently because she had polio when she was a kid. She and is. Yeah. She's adapted to her deficits. Yeah, uh, king of the open tunings. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. No, in fact, uh, a friend of mine uh, was just lucky enough to take uh, he and his wife, uh, they're very good friends with Scarlett Rivera, and so, and Scarlett's a friend of Joni, so they went out to Joni's 75th birthday celebration in Los Angeles just last week. Have you seen? Oh, that's right. I read about that somewhere. Boy, there is some. You've got to check out uh, Seal singing both sides now. I mean, uh, you're not Who's even uh, Seal. The uh, you know the black singer. Oh, oh, the, 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 oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's kind of hasn't been on the scene for a while, but my God, you're not a human being if it doesn't bring a tear to your eye by the end of that. Uh, but Joni looked like a million bucks, and, you know, she had some real severe health problems. Yeah. Thank God we didn't lose her. But, uh, um, you know, she was a uh, uh, huge influence on Prince. Prince absolutely adored Joni. Yeah, Mitchell. I read that. That came up during after he, after he died. Mm-hmm. That he was, you know, just completely musically and perhaps other ways in love with her. Yeah, well, I would have uh, – I remember that uh, – uh, the uh, the record that opened up where she's going skinny dipping on For the Roses, I, I would have married her on the spot had I <laughs> knowing how to get but a hold of her. Get, you know, that's another thing I got to get. I got to give Prince. You know, he stayed very close to his roots. Oh, absolutely. You know, he really. I mean, 
He didn't. I, mean, he, uh, I, I guess he's all the, his studio or whatever is like a museum now, right? Yeah, they're turning it into it. In fact, uh, a, f- a friend of mine, Tim Fitch, who I stayed with down in Memphis, I went down to the Blues Awards and actually had a just about a minute conversation with Tony Joe White, uh, just to tell him how much I dug him. And tall yeah. boy, a tall drink of water that kid. I bet he was about six foot four, slender, big cowboy hat. So he was just getting ready to go down the es- escalator, and I caught him. But I was staying with Tim Fitch uh, down there when he was getting the calls, and he, and he has just been named director of operations at Paisley Park. And I just talked to him yesterday, and they're getting ready to do uh, – uh, they're trying to get their liquor license so they can do one big event a month. Uh, it's open for tours, and, uh, yeah, it's really – boy. It's and there's, a- al- there's also, like, hours of tape, right? Oh yeah, there's yeah there's the 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 problem is is there's like seven errors. Um, I mean, it's a really convoluted legal quagmire. To, you know, yeah. uh, you know to get. Oh yeah, there's hundreds of hours of not only audio but uh, video. Yeah, his literally from where we taped the show in uh, uh, Eden Prairie, which is neither Eden nor a prairie. Uh, we're ten minutes from Chanhassen, where. Uh, uh, Paisley Park is, and the Chanhassen Dinner Theater, um, just a few, a uh, couple of months before uh, he passed, they were doing a uh, Ray Charles tribute. Uh, my buddy Bobby Vandell was playing the drums, and Prince showed up uh, and did, uh, grabbed the guitar and did Let the Good Time Roll. Uh, <laughs> well, fabulous. Yeah, it was really cool. And, you know, he um, he also used to frequent the Electric Fetus uh wonderful record store here just celebrated its 50th anniversary was there one of the last pictures of him just two weeks before he passed and i know the clerk that sold him his stash of records i can't remember all of them but it was a a Joni mitchell record a swan silvertones stevie wonder talking book and and a couple of others, but yeah, loving. Uh, somebody said, "Well, why?" Yeah, he was a, he was a, he was a real omnivore, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And you know, somebody said I had posted that, and somebody said, um, "Why is he buying another Joni Mitchell record?" And I said, "Because he wore the the first <laughs> one out." You know, <laughs> more with Charles Pierce. One more segment of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Hang in there. Jack 
cabin or hat Whoever taught you to shoot a pistol like that Or you snuck in the basement and you stood in the back Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby in a cabin or hat Fish in New Orleans give you the key The men you should contact and the men you should see A confederate cloak of conspiracy With an eye towards November 1963 Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metz, our guest for the whole show on what we are hoping to become a recurring theme called Checkpoint Charlie. Hits his third appearance Mr. Charlie Pierce talked to us from a library in Boston. Charlie, have you had a chance to hear any of the new uh, Blood on the Tracks remastered stuff? Just a li- just a little bit. I heard the uh, the the one that, that that knocked me out of my chair, as you know, Bob does regularly for the past forty years, was the solo acoustic uh, "You're a Big Girl Now." Yeah, which is just, I mean, it's always been a heartbreaking song, but that's just an astonishing performance. That you know, it's so crazy. I had, uh, I think I told you, I interviewed four of the guys in my studio on my TV show, Wall of Power TV. Uh, for those out there in the radio audience, you can watch it at uh, Saturday nights if you have Comcast on channel six at eight and eleven thirty and two a.m. or stream it from mcn6.org. But I had four of the guys in the studio, Charlie, um, who played on the record, and then uh, the guitar player on Skype and the drummer, who is also from Hibbing, Minnesota, on the phone. And we told the whole story of their experience with just showing up at Sound 80 Studios. This is uh, Bob Odenkirk, right? Uh, Kevin Odegaard. Kevin Odegaard, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Kevin Odegaard and the boys and... uh, a couple of interesting things that I didn't know. I knew quite a bit. I mean, about weren't they, weren't they, I'm, I'm trying to remember from the book now. Didn't they go right to that session from some sort of radio commercial work? Yeah. Well, the uh, the bass player Billy Peterson uh, and the drummer Bill Berg were like the two go to studio musicians in town. So, and David Zimmerman, Bob's uh, brother, yeah. ran a lot of the uh, uh, had his, had a company and did a lot of uh, commercial work and was always booking. Uh, uh, Billy uh, Billy Berg and, and Billy Peterson uh, to do these sessions. So, uh, but nobody knew who it was going to uh, be. So David made the first call to Kevin Odegaard, who was working at a um, uh, he was working as a railroad brakeman at the time. And as he tells the story, it was a it was a dark and cold night, and uh, Kevin was home watching Kojak. Uh, <laughs> we got the phone call, and. Uh, Bob was, uh, well, they didn't say it was Bob, but somebody um, somebody that David Zimmerman knew was looking for this 1937 particular 00 Martin guitar. Kevin called Chris Weber, who owned the Podium Guitar Shop in Dinkytown, one of the coolest uh, guitar shops ever in this town, not there anymore. He just so happened to have that exact same, not only uh, the model, but the exact same year that this friend of David Zimmerman's was looking for, and it was on consignment. So he called the guy that it was on consignment for, and they showed up at the studio, and uh, lo and behold, uh, it was Bob Dylan. And uh, one thing led to another, and uh, it was kind of like, you know, when I think about it, when I hear the stories, it was kind of like how the uh, you know, Magnificent Seven got together, you know. <laughs> and uh, But what was cool, the funniest story, uh, and I'm, 
I should be letting Charlie Pierce, my guest, talk, but uh, I know Charlie loves this blood on the track stuff. So Peter Ostrushko is in a, uh, the guy that played uh, mandolin, I think it was on Your Big Girl Now, and um, he is has a incredible fever. So he wants to get out of the house. Well, if you can't get Peter on his in his apartment on the West Bank, you call the 400 bar. And so he was there playing pinball. So his buddy calls him and says, hey, I'm going to come pick you up. Let's get your fiddle and your mandolin. we got to go to this recording session. Peter's 21 years old. Yeah. Number one, he's never been in a recording studio before. And number two, of course, then he's never done a recording session. So he shows up with his hero, Bob Dylan, does the song. They do three or four takes. Um, Bob actually played some of the other mandolin parts on that tune, uh, on the higher mandolin parts. Peter goes back home, wakes up the next day, calls his buddy and says, man, I had the most incredible dream last night. (laughs) I dreamt I recorded with Bob Dylan. His buddy said, you did. Tell us when you first heard Blood on the Tracks, what did you think of it, Charlie? I know you're a big Dylan fan. Oh, I heard, I, I, I heard, actually didn't hear the album. I heard it sung by a good friend of mine in college, who, Don Walker, who worked at the Milwaukee Journal and passed away three or four years ago. But he came down the stairs into the student newspaper office singing Death Tangled Up in Blue. Hmm. And I thought, wow, this sounds like an interesting lyric. I think I'll go get it. And then I went out and bought the album and played it, I think, you know, 12 times through the first time I had it. Right, right. Uh, the the line about Carpenter's Wives is the one that nailed me to the wall. Yeah. That was the one mm-hmm. where I, you know, because I, I had, you know, I had really enjoyed New Morning. I didn't think very much of, of self-portrait. But, you know, that was the one where it said, okay, now we've we've rounded the far turn and we're heading for home. We're back, you know, we're back where we're supposed to be with this guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I still think, you know, his his line about Tangled Up in Blue, which is it. It took it, it 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 took me five it took me ten years to live and and like three hours to write. It's one of the great <laughs> lines of all time. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, it's a phenomenal set. Just what I've heard. Um, uh, I'm going to figure a way by hook or by crook to get all six deaths by the. Uh, you know, and the interesting thing about that album is there are songs in it that I, I didn't really get when I was 25. Right. That. Will go right to my heart when I'm like when I'm 45 or 60. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, simple just to say I didn't get the first time I heard it. Right. But uh, like 10 years later, I listened to it again, and I couldn't get out of my chair. Right. Do you do you remember? Um, I wanted to talk about because it's the 55th. Well, let's do this. Let's take a, sh- a, sh- a hard right turn here. we got about a minute and a half left. Charlie, we're coming on the uh, 55th anniversary of the assassination of uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Uh, where were you the day you heard the news? Oh, I was in fifth grade. Uh, and I remember my, my knives. Uh, Sister Kathleen Robert of the Sisters of St. Joseph at St. Peter's Elementary School in Worcester, Mass., and she was the only young nun I ever had in eight years of, of Catholic grammar school. Uh, and I mean, she couldn't have been more. I don't think she was thirty. She might have been thirty. Wow! But she went out in the hallway and didn't come back. And we didn't have a PA mm-hmm. uh, in the old school building where I was at. So I went out and I looked out the door. I was sitting in the seat right by the door, and all these nuns were were in a group in the middle of the hallway crying. Wow! You know, and I thought to myself, you know. Wow, you know this is strange. When what happened? Right. And then she had to come back. They had to go back to their classes and tell all of us. Right. 
which was very hard. But to me, I mean, as, 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 as unforgettable as that was, the real mind blower of all mind blowers was seeing Oswald get shot on live television. Yeah. The first, I told my kids, I said, you, I have still never seen anything like that on TV. The first reality TV show. Well, the first, well it was one of the first times I can remember where, where the phrase glued to your television set was actually accurate for that entire weekend. You know, we are going to continue this uh, conversation, hopefully uh, have uh, Charlie Pierce on again in the near future before Christmas on the ongoing series Checkpoint, Charlie. No, we'll, have to do, we'll, have to do, we'll have to do a Christmas special, you and I. Absolutely. Let's do and that. Andy Williams used to. Yes, absolutely. Let's do that. <laughs> Charlie, thanks for your time today. Uh, no problem, get, Paul. Anytime, anytime. Say hi to everybody up there for me. I, sh- I sure will, and, and enjoy uh, the rest of your day there in the library. Will do. Okay, brother. <laughs> Talk to you soon, Charlie. You do, pal. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show is produced by Paul Metzen, engineered by Eric Nelson, recorded in the basements of the AM950 studio in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, which is neither Eden nor Prairie. Thanks for listening. I play every Thursday night at Shaw's Bar at 5 o'clock, 16th and University, Wednesday night with Sunny Earl at 9 p.m. at the Green Lantern in St. Paul. Follow all of this stuff on paulmetza.com. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy. Someday.